Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. Friends, I invite you now to this introduction to the scripture. Mark chapter 5 contains the second longest and most complex of the gospels narrated exorcisms in which Jesus encounters a demoniac. This person who was so commandeered by mental torment that it provoked him to an appalling sense of self-abuse, leaving him impossible to restrain, which was horrifying to his neighbors because of his howling among the tombs. In the Levitical tradition, contact with corpses defiled God. Now, if you can get past the creepiness and complexity as described, you may hear undertones and references to religious impurity and a calling out of the stubborn Israel who was seen as rebelling against God. Jesus, though, flips the script and receives this victim of trauma and torment. The story could have ended there, but it takes a different turn when the community who witnesses all of this becomes afraid and starts begging Jesus to get out of town. Hear now the text. They came to the other side of the sea, to the region of Garsanis. And when he had stepped out of the boat, Immediately, a man from the tombs with the unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain, for he had often been restrained with shackles and chains. But the chains he wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him and shouted at the top of his voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. Now there on the hillside, a great herd of swine was feeding And the unclean spirits begged him, send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine and the herd, numbering about 2,000. And they stampeded down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The swine herds ran off and they told it in the city and in the country. Then people came to see what it was that they had witnessed and what had happened. 
They came to Jesus and saw the man possessed by demons sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen what had happened to the man, possessed by demons, and to the swine reported it. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus refused and said to him, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and how everyone was amazed. Thus ends the reading. common question we are apt to hear on a daily basis. I think just on my way down the hallway and into the sanctuary, I, I must have been asked or answered that question a dozen times. How are you? It's, it's the question that is ubiquitous in every culture, in every place. Como esta? Como da la Como va? What's poppin'? Wasabi? Um, what's buzzin' cousin? I don't know, I'm trying. How are you, uh, really? It is really the most common question we're apt to hear, which then leads to the most common response that we are apt to give, which is mostly half-hearted, disingenuous, um, you know, disinterested. We say, good, fine, okay, hanging in there, living the dream. Can't complain, feeling like a pit bull in a butcher shop. Somebody said that to me once, so I… <laughs> but how are you really? It's our question that we're asking over the next four weeks as we begin this 
Being Well series because how we answer that question is profoundly important to God. For 2,000 years, Christians have assumed that uh, God is mostly preoccupied with spiritual matters, metaphysical things like salvation, damnation, heaven and hell, miracles and angels, these kinds of things. But too often Christians neglect the earthly and physical concerns of our lives, like real flesh and blood, like mind and body, like our mental and physical and emotional well-being. And sadly, Christians easily forget that Jesus cared so much about our bodies and our minds that there are at least, by my count, 26 miracles of healing that Jesus performed in the Gospels alone. Because for Jesus, body, mind, and spirit could not be separated. We know in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. But somehow we have, over the years, confused this idea of abundant life with eternal life. As if this earthly life is more important than, or less important than the heavenly life. As if our bodies are less important than our souls. As if even bodies could be separated from souls. Jesus had this profoundly different view of what it means to be human. For Jesus, there are no bodies and souls. For Jesus, there are only embodied souls and ensouled bodies. Jesus knew what behavioral scientists have discovered over the last several decades, and that is that there is this intimate, indispensable, reciprocal relationship between our bodies and our minds. And we have a word for this today. We know that word uh, as psychosomatic, right? It comes from the Greek, two Greek roots, psuche meaning mind or soul, and somatikos meaning body. And psychosomatic is the word that we use to explain this relationship between our bodies and souls and how our bodies will tell us how our minds are doing. Psychosomatic reminds us that spirit and matter, soul and flesh, mind and body, it's all entangled in wonderful ways. So that when our, when our spirit aches and our, uh, our soul suffers some trauma, when it is exhausted, when it is hurting, it is our physical bodies which tell us because our souls need physical form. And that form is our body. And that body tells us how we're doing. And so we can sometimes look at how we're doing by signals, addiction, bulimia, anxiety, depression, um, cutting, overwork, insomnia, uh, hypertension. These physical signals remind us that somewhere within us is an aching spirit. And likewise, whenever our body suffers trauma or exhaustion, our spirits will cry out. They will shout out. They will scream at us to tell us there's something wrong here. Anxiety, worry, fear, restlessness, 
suspicion of others, a sense of hopelessness. And so I ask you again, how are you? And you have to listen to your soul and you have to listen to your body to really answer that question truthfully. What does it mean to say that we are well? I want to talk today about wellness, especially wellness of mind. Mental health and especially mental illness is a subject that Christians have long uh, ignored. Uh, It's just part of our history and tradition to not talk about it. Many Christians uh, tragically have associated mental illness with uh, divine punishment or a spiritual illness or a simple lack of faith, as in, you know, if you would just pray more, if you would just trust Jesus a little more, you could really pull through this. And this causes for a lot of people some trauma, a lot of shame and stigma. So I know simply mentioning the phrase mental illness in church can be so deeply triggering. But we have to talk about this, and it is part of my commitment as a pastor to talk about it at least once a year, because it affects so many of us, and it affects so many of the people that we love. Because our students also at this season are returning back to school, it's especially urgent that we talk about mental illness. The statistics suggest that mental illness affects every one of us in some way. One in four adults in the world, that's 25%, will experience a mental health issue at least once in their lifetime. 20%, that is one in five U.S. adults, experience mental illness at least once a year. That's 47 million people. One in 25, that's about 5% of adults in the U.S., experience a significant, serious mental illness each year. One in six U.S. youths, ages six to 17, experience a mental illness each year. Suicide. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among our students, ages 10 to 34, the second leading cause. Suicide uh, is um, something that we know is associated with a mental health condition. That is to say, 90% of those who die by suicide suffer from a mental health condition. And maybe here is the most important little detail I can give you, and that is that four out of five people, that is 80% of people who seek help for a mental health condition, get better. If you were to buy a lottery ticket with the promise that you got an 80% chance of winning, you'd probably buy that ticket. What do we mean by mental illness? We have all kinds of words and phrases to describe this experience, a bipolar, anxiety disorder, um, addiction, depression, PTSD, uh, multiple personality disorder, anorexia, bulimia. There's a whole host of, of terms that brain scientists and psychologists have used to describe this um, experience. And listen carefully, this is how it works. Uh, our, our brain uh, has uh, this experience of malfunction. And when that happens, that changes how our mind works. 
it affects the way our mind operates, which then affects how we behave. You hear the progression. It goes from brain to mind, the way we think, to then the way we behave. The pathway is a mental illness, is a condition that affects our moods, our feelings, our thinking, that then translates into certain behaviors. The most prevalent are anxiety disorders, major depressive disorders, PTSD, bipolar. 19.3% of U.S. adults with mental illness also have a substance abuse disorder, which means if you treat one, you must treat the other, but if you treat one, the other may respond as well. With any mental illness, what we consider to be normal functioning in our daily lives and normal healthy ways of relating to others and ourselves is hindered and diminished so that we no longer have the full capacity to live, as Jesus said, an abundant life. And so people with depression might, they might struggle just to get out of bed or to complete very simple tasks. Somebody with an eating disorder, anorexia or bulimia, might deprive themselves of essential nutrients. People with PTSD, they might be triggered by a certain sound or a certain experience that would then send them into a desperate breathing pattern. In each case, the mind sort of trips like an electrical circuit breaker. And in that tripping, it, it produces these self-destructive responses because of a brain disorder. Now, what makes all this so difficult to talk about is that there's stigma, right? Um, a stigma associated with mental illness. Think about this. You might, you might have diabetes, and you might tell somebody, look, I've got diabetes. And they might respond to you with, with great sympathy and compassion and care. But if you tell them, I have depression, I have schizophrenia, there is a good chance that they might at least take a half step back, if not a full step back, out of fear or judgment. And so those with mental illness, they often feel ostracized and shamed. They feel cut off from the world, truly cut off, which is the story that we have today about this man from Mark's gospel. This man lives in a cemetery, literally the land of the dead, because he is dead to the world. And each night, people in town can hear him shrieking among the tombs. And sometimes they'll capture him and bind his wrists and ankles and chains. They'll drag him back into town. But the madness never ends, and he breaks out every time. And he trails broken chains through the tombs, tearing at his skin, using rocks to beat himself, exchanging one form of pain with another. If this man has a name, nobody knows it. If he has a, a history and a past, nobody remembers it. If he has a soul worth saving, nobody sees it behind the darkness of his eyes. Can you, can you see this man in your mind? Nobody can. Except Jesus does. The story is strange to us modern readers, I know. It's full of, like, really bizarre details, not the least of which are talking demons. 
and public nakedness and pigs and healing. It's all pretty weird, isn't it? Especially the part about the demons. I mean, what do we make of this Bible talk about demons? I don't know. Maybe in biblical times, they had uh, the same problems that we have today, only um, they didn't have names for it, like epilepsy or schizophrenia. And so they just called it demon possession. Maybe uh, demon possession was really a major issue back then, Uh, only um, like smallpox, it, you know, today's world, we just don't have it anymore. Maybe there really is such a thing as demon possession, but today we use scientific and medical terms to describe the things that possess us. Can I tell you, I don't really know. What I do know is that I've encountered people over the course of my 30 plus years of ministry who suffer from addictions and compulsions and conditions that have overtaken their lives, that have um, in some way chained them in the cemeteries of this world, who can't break free on their own. You can call it what you like, but here's the most important thing. If we don't call it something, it just grows more powerful. The more we refuse to talk about these things, the more controlling and powerful they become. Jesus came to set captives free. Even this captive in Mark's gospel, people said about this man, nobody can do anything about him. It's just what it is. But I want you to see what Jesus does in the story here because he gives us some insight into how we in our relationships with ourselves and others might also talk about and experience the healing that Jesus brings. The first thing Jesus does in this story is he asks the man his name. And it seems like such a trivial little question. What's your name? It's such a simple question, but it is absolutely essential to his healing. What is your name? This man has lost everything. He's lost his family. He's lost his sanity. He's lost his home, his community, But more than anything, he's lost his humanity. He lives among the tombs. He's dead. He is shackled like an animal. He's naked. He's isolated. He's cut off from the human family. He howls like a beast. And he hurts himself. And worse than all this illness is the shame that comes with it. The shame that makes him less than human. And so Jesus asks him his name because to have a name is to be human. The ancients once believed that, that uh, your name is your essence and to have a name is to have your humanity. And so Jesus asks him, what's your name? And the man has forgotten that he's a person. He knows himself only by that which possesses him. And so his response is, my name is Legion. A legion is a basic unit of the Roman army, somewhere like five or 6,000 soldiers. And so when he says, my name is Legion, what he is saying is, I have this violent, terrible, 
unending battle going on in my life, a struggle that is defeating me. This battle defines how he lives and how he understands himself. And people who suffer from mental illness often struggle to differentiate between what they have and who they are. They might say, I'm depressed, instead of saying, I have depression. They might say, I'm bipolar, instead of saying, I I have bipolar disorder. Your illness is not your identity. Depression, anxiety, these are not who you are, they're simply what you have. Who you are is God's beloved, and what you have is working overtime to inhibit the sense of being beloved. But your illness is not your essence. You're not your illness. Instead, maybe when we think about mental illness, we can think about mental illness as a character in our story. I've always appreciated how the great preacher and writer Nadia Boltz Weber here from Denver speaks of her own experience with depression. And she came to see depression and her depression as a character in her story, in her life. And so she named her depression Francis, after the daughter of Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love, Francis Bean. And she says Francis came to visit her in her late teens and early 20s. And she said Francis was a terrible roommate. She always told Nadia all these really horrible things and made her feel bad about herself. And her life fell apart. And everybody around her started getting worried about her until her mother finally said, you know, maybe you should go see somebody and see if they can evict Francis from your apartment. And she says, Francis was a little bit of a dope fiend, but there was, um, there was one drug that Francis didn't like. It was called Wellbutrin. Wellbutrin. And two weeks after Nadia took Wellbutrin, she started getting better. And Francis left. She said, not for good. Francis still comes around from time to time, unexpected, unannounced. She stays for a couple of days. But it turns out Francis doesn't like all the things that she says I'm interested in, like sobriety and friends and exercise and community and good food and, of course, Jesus. It's a great story. It's a great story. It's a reminder, number one, that medication works. There's no stigma associated with taking medication in a time of mental illness. It's also a reminder that we can make, we can make this condition just a, a character in our story. And then we get to choose how we're going to relate to the character. What's your name, Jesus asks. Legion, says the man. But Legion is just the character that Jesus comes to evict. Um, There's something else that Jesus does here in this story that makes all the difference. Jesus says the hard word. He says the hard, courageous word. The demons are begging him not to destroy them. Uh, Go easy on us, Jesus. Be kind to us. What does Jesus do? He orders the spirits into the pigs. The pigs go into the water and drown. It's a bizarre little detail. I was going to say, everything goes better with bacon. That's probably why it's in there. (laughs) 
Jesus refuses to go easy on this guy. Uh, Jesus doesn't feel sorry for him. Jesus doesn't feel sorry for him. He meets him where he is, but he refuses to leave him where he is. Jesus challenges him. And whether you suffer from mental illness or you know somebody and love somebody who does, remember that what can make all the difference in the world is dogged encouragement to get better. I have recommended a million times the great book by William Styron. You know, he was the Pulitzer Prize winning author of Sophia's Choice, among others. He wrote a little wonderful memoir called Darkness Visible about his own experience of deep, severe depression. And what he says in this book is it's vitally important that you have people around you who convince you to get up, to start walking, and to get out of the valley. And he says it it sounds like the worst thing you could ever tell somebody, but the most important thing is what he calls dogged encouragement. It sounds almost counterintuitive to say when somebody's really hurting, to push them, to prod them, to provoke them. But almost always, it can save a life. It's tough love. Jesus often said to people who are sick, what do you want me to do for you? Get up, walk. Tough, life-giving love. And Jesus does one more thing. It makes all the difference. He restores this man to community. Um, once healed, this man wants to follow Jesus and go with him all the way. And, and Jesus knows what this man needs more than anything are the people in his community. He has been so completely isolated and cut off from people uh, that, um, that he needs to be reconnected. Can I say this? Um, every demon thrives in isolation. Depression, addiction, bulimia, mania, anxiety, hopelessness. It needs, it needs isolation. Loneliness is always the go-to tactic of every demon. And the only way to defeat the demon is to reconnect. And healing is never complete apart from community. So as I wrap this up, let me just say, some of you are probably thinking, you know, mental illness is not my problem. In fact, I don't even know anybody who has a mental illness. Um, So what does this have to do with me? Well, psychologists are reminding us now over the last two to three years that there's this condition that's emerging in our culture and in the lives of people. It's called languishing. It has everything to do with the pandemic and all the social unrest that we've gone through. We're exhausted. Our souls are aching and tired. They've identified this this experience that many people in America are having. It's called languishing. It means, well, it's between, somewhere between flourishing and abundant life and depression. It's in that, it's that neglected stepchild of mental health. It's the absence of well-being. It's the sense of stagnation. It's, maybe it's captured best in that ubiquitous phrase, meh, meh. If you're languishing, it might feel like you're muddling through your days. It might feel like you're looking through a windshield that's all fogged up. Languishing, it dulls your motivation. It, 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 it disrupts your ability to, to focus on tasks. And it's the number one predictor for a severe mental illness in the future. That is to say, those who are most inclined in the next 10 years to experience mental illness are those who report the experience of languishing 
today. This is why we're talking about mind-mending, because this impacts every one of us. I want to just give you four very quick practices to put in your little toolbox in this season. Uh, First, get some sleep. Yeah. The three pillars of mental health that we know of are sleep, exercise, and diet. And everybody across the board says the most important of those three is sleep. We need seven hours on average of rest a day. Our brains do. Our brains need to shut down. And in sleeping, we convert short-term memory to long-term memory. We uh, are able to, to work out all those unhealthy toxins and the cortisol that runs through us all day. It's a way to sort of filter that out. What we know is the, the strongest predictor of mental well-being is the quality of your sleep. Second, get some exercise. This is not rocket science, folks. But if you exercise four to five times a week for 20 to 30 minutes a day, it's proven to ease depression and anxiety because it releases endorphins and, and, and hormones that are, are good feel hormones in your body. These chemicals that release a sense of well-being. And exercise takes your mind off that relentless track of bad thoughts and negative thinking. Uh, what we know is this, our brains need routine. Uh, routine, what routine does for us is it allows our brains to check out for a while. If, if we have a routine, our brains don't have to make decisions about what we're going to do next. We just kind of do it. Think about exercise as a way to punch the clock for your brain, to give it a, a little time off, to restore. Br- brains, they need, they need a breather. Number three, get some food, especially some good food. I read this, this is fascinating. Our brains are greedy little organs. They make up only 2% of our total body weight, but they consume anywhere from 20 to 25% of our caloric intake. I mean, that's pretty greedy. Our brains are just constantly consuming, which means that we really are what we think, what we eat, and we think what we eat, and what we eat impacts the way we think. And so we're told to eat mood foods, right? Veggies and seafood, herbs, garlic, olive oil, grains. And lastly, get some friends. This is maybe the hardest one. I bet every one of us struggles at times with finding friends. And what's even harder than finding friends is keeping them. And you might have a hundred friends on social media. You might even be one of those people that have thousands. And guess what? They're not all your friends. In fact, some of them don't even like you. <laughs> They're just friends because they want to see how gray your hair got and how much weight you gained since high school, right? Some of them are just trolling you. They're not your friends. Jesus says, he says to Legion, go home. Go back to your people. Um, Who are your friends? You know what I do? I look at my phone. My phone has that little star that says favorites. And I look at those people. I pray for them. These are the most important people in my life. And sometimes they rotate, depending on their needs, depending on what's going on. I check in with them. 
invest in them. Our takeaways for today, God desires that we have life and have it abundantly. And God gives us the power and agency to make ourselves well. And so get some sleep, get some exercise, get some food, get some friends, and you know you can get some help. Our pastoral team is always here for you. We'll help you get some help. We'll help you on your journey. You have people all around in this congregation who are on the same journey with you. Let's pray. Loving God, we pray for those who are confronted by the sadness and pain and confusion of mental illness in all of its forms. We pray for those upon whom your compassion is expressed through other people. Have mercy on all of us, whether we experience mental illness or we walk with those who do. Heal and restore all of us to your dignity, your peace, and your community. And give to each of us companions on our journey toward abundant life. We pray in the name of Christ who brought healing to each of us. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.